0: Well, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. The title of the message this morning is, Toward a Godward Work Ethic. And as I had the, the chance to uh, pray with a few of the elders this morning, I, I confess to them that after being in the book of Ephesians for almost a year now, can you believe that? I, I wish I could tell you that I scheduled this sermon specifically for Labor Day. But I did I'm not smart enough to do that. But God has His purposes, does He not? The book of Ephesians, as I think you have uh, gathered by now, is a theological tour de force. This is a book that is supercharged. It is a book that exalts the living God. It is a book that that magnifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians is a a powerful book that equips the people of God and encourages the people of God and motivates the people of God and draws our hearts to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. This book, along with the other 65 books in the Bible, are all marked by truth, are they not? Before we dig into our passage in Ephesians 6 this morning, I want you to look, by way of introduction, at seven distinguishing marks of what constitute truth. I want you to see, first of all, that truth is divine. Truth is divine. That is to say that that truth comes from God. Luther used to say, all truth is God's truth. Additionally, I want you to see that truth is absolute. It is absolute. There, is no, there are no escape hatches. There really is nothing to clarify. When something is true, it is true absolutely. Number three, truth is a fact. Truth is a fact. Four, truth is singular. You can see how all these begin to flow together. Number five, truth never changes. I would add much to the chagrin of the postmodern thinker. We live in a culture where if you believe in truth, if you adhere to the truth, you are categorized as someone who is narrow. You are categorized as someone who is bigoted. But we need to remember this morning that truth never changes. Number six, please remember that truth makes demands. Whenever you lay an assertion of truth on the table, you begin to realize that it calls you to believe a particular notion. It calls you to behave in a particular way. That is to say, truth makes demands. Finally, and we have been learning this all throughout our study in the book of Ephesians, and that is that truth is powerful. Truth is powerful. Now, in recent days, we have seen together how Scripture addresses a variety of different kinds of people. We have seen how the Word of God addresses husbands. And husbands, you remember, the Word of God was fairly hard on you. And I worked hard to make sure that you uh, felt challenged, but were also encouraged. But we've also seen that the Word of God addresses wives. We've seen that the Word of God addresses children, that the Word of God addresses parents. And today we're going to move to a totally different category of people. We're going to move to employer-employee relationships. And here we will learn, as we have already learned with husbands and wives and children and parents, that there is a, a principle of authority and submission. This has been a dominant theme over really several years of of the ministry here at Christ Fellowship. It has certainly characterized my pulpit ministry. It is one of authority and submission. Authority and submission. We see it flow throughout the pages of Scripture. I'm happy to say that many of you are... Not only beginning to understand this flow of authority and submission, but many of you are very pleased to assent to this authority submission model. Let me say this humbly and candidly. If you're here this morning and you're a husband, a wife, a child, a parent, an employer, an employee, and you say, you know what, this whole thing about authority and submission is a bunch of bunk. Get over it. Right? Because this is absolute truth. Remember, truth makes demands. But here's what you'll see. That That's the negative statement I want to say about authority and submission. Get over it if you struggle with it. The positive thing is this, and I, I mentioned this last week, that in submission, in submitting to whomever God has placed over you, whether it's a wife submitting to her husband, whether it's a child submitting to his or her parents, whether it is... The household of faith submitting to elders that God has placed over you. Or whether, as we'll discover today, it's an employee who submits to an employer. Here's what we have discovered. That there is freedom in submission. I, I, I could tell you story after story after story, especially when it comes to marriage counseling. Or you have a situation where a wife is unwilling to submit to the authority of her husband. And that is usually precipitated by a husband who's been a passive leader. And generally what, not generally, always what men will hear in that case is, yes, it's true, I understand, I sympathize with you that your wife's not submitting to your authority. But guess what? It's your fault. It's your fault. But pastor, you don't under... When, When a man is passive... All you do is invite your wife to to reject your leadership. Now, that doesn't mean she's off the hook, because the wife is called to submit to the authority of her husband. But here is what I have discovered in in episode after episode after episode, that when a wife begins to see that there is, is great benefit, and great delight, and great joy in submitting to the leadership of her husband... All of a sudden, and you can see it in her body language, you can see it in the way she talks, you can see it in her attitudes and her actions, she is free. It is a wonderful thing. And so that cuts through all of these different scenarios. A wife, a husband, parents, and as we will see today, the employer-employee relationship. There is a biblical mandate... For you and I to to subject to those who are in authority over us. By way of introduction, listen to three verses, very important verses that will be in in sync with the passage we'll look at here in just a moment. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Paul says, Bondservants, obey, and that's the word I want you to pay close attention to, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. There's the, the principle, once again, of authority and submission. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Lord willing, we will come back to this. Peter says, Be subject, and that's the same word translated obey in Colossians 3. Be subject or obey for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme. And then Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, generally, there's a question that arises at this point, especially when it comes to obeying the governmental authorities. And I'm going to say this in passing because I think it's something that we have learned along the way and we we know this pretty well. The only exception to the rule of authority and submission is this. When the government... When a husband, when an employer, when a a mom or a dad tells someone who they are in authority over to do something that violates scripture, that is the only case where we are called to disobey. And so in Romans chapter 13, you, you think about the idea of civil disobedience, which is a very controversial subject. There are cases when the government would ask you to do something that violates the Word of God where you would disobey. For instance, if the government ever mandated that a woman get a a mandatory abortion, the Christian woman would be obligated to do what? To disobey. To disobey. And so that's the only exception to this rule of authority and submission. Now before we move into... Our passage in Ephesians chapter 6, I want to take time, just a moment, to explore some historical context, to give the the biblical background, the backdrop, if you will, by looking at the example of Rome. Unfortunately, slavery was an accepted reality, as most of you know, in the Roman Empire. Indeed, much of the labor was done by slaves. It is estimated, and this will blow your socks off unless you're wearing sandals. It is estimated that in the Roman Empire there were over 60 million slaves. That's a lot of slaves. That's a lot of slaves. Gaius, a Roman emperor, wrote that, quote, "...we may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over the slave. If a slave ran away in the days of the Roman Empire, at best he was branded on the forehead with the letter F, which was the symbol for fugitive, which means runaway. And at the very worst, that fugitive was killed." Slaves in ancient times were often under the whim or the impulse of his or her master. Augustus, for example, crucified a slave because he killed a pet quail. Vettius Polio flung a slave still living into a pool of lamprey eels because this individual dropped and broke a crystal goblet one other individual tells of a roman person who ordered a slave to be killed for no other reason than that she lost her temper with him and so this this context of the roman empire is very instructive for us there was a time when when slavery really was very very common now i want to move to our cultural context by addressing employer employee relationships now Obviously, the majority, the vast majority of employer-employee relationships don't match the brutality that we just described in the days of the Roman Roman Empire. And you say, but you've never met my boss, Pastor. Well, I think we would agree that we have moved on from those days. But now we live in an age where employees are battling for their rights. Employees are battling for higher salaries. These employees are battling for uh, less time, more vacation, higher salaries. And the employers are asking for more work, more time, more devotion, more profits in their pockets. And so we are on the horns of a dilemma, as it were. You are aware of disputes that professional athletes engage in on an ongoing basis. As a, as a massive fan of sports, I get, I get very frustrated when someone that I love to watch on the football field or the, the baseball diamond or the basketball court holds out so that individual can receive millions and millions and millions of dollars. It drives me insane when someone on the Seahawks says, I'm, I'm going to hold out a camp, and I want my agent to negotiate a better deal for me. And I say to myself, hey buddy, you're already making more in two days, and I'm going to make in six lifetimes. And so what, what, what is at, the, at stake here is greed. It's the employees are greedy, and employers are greedy as well. And so the Apostle Paul is very in tune even in the first century context with these very practical concerns. His concerns touched a nerve with the Christians in the first century in the city of Ephesus, and his concerns also touch a nerve with each one of us as well. And so in light of this very interesting struggle of personal rights and autonomous agendas, I want to focus on one very basic question with you, and that is, what is your responsibility most of you are employees some of you in the future will also be employed by an employer given that is is the case what is your responsibility some of you are not employees but you're employers and so the question for you will be what does god expect of you so I want to have you look with me at Ephesians chapter 6 and ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word as we read together verses 5 through 9. And this is the Word of the Lord. Bondservants, obey you earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, it is such a, a pleasure to open your word and to read it, and meditate upon it, to study it. And as we come to this uh, very, very practical section of scripture, my prayer is that you would enable each of us to have eyes that can see your truth, ears that can hear your truth, that you would give us the ability to, to digest it and to receive it with joyful hearts. Father, if there is anyone here who is struggling with the biblical principle of authority and submission, I ask that today would be the day when, when that ends. That whoever is struggling, that they would see that there is absolute freedom in submitting to the authority that a sovereign God has placed over them. May they see that by submitting to this God-ordained authority, that they not only submit to that person, but ultimately they submit to you by doing just that. And so would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us according to the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen. What is the responsibility of Christian employees? What is the responsibility of Christian employers? We're going to spend the vast majority of our time with the first part of that question. That is, what is the responsibility of Christian employees? And I want to give a very simple answer that is found in our passage. And I'll put it like this. God-centered employees obey their employers. In order to, to grasp and understand what's happening in this passage, I want to have you look, uh, first of all, with me at the meaning of obedience. The meaning of obedience. And grasping the meaning of obedience means that we need to define our terms. The first term is, is an all-important term. And if you are reading out of the English Standard Version, as I am, you will see that in verse 5, the Greek word doulos is translated bondservants. Bondservants. This is the word that is also translated as slave. And so you see, based on the translation that you have in your lap, that the Greek word doulos is really translated in a variety of ways. And it is a controversial term. You could probably see why the translators of the English Standard Version decided to move away from the terminology of slavery. And that's obvious why they did that, because when you hear the word slave, if you're like me, it tends to make you either nervous or upset, probably more of the latter. The term doulos is also translated as servant if you are using the King James Version. But if you have the New American Standard or the the Christian Standard Bible, which by the way is an excellent translation, or the NIV, you will see that slave is the way the translators rendered doulos. Now there is controversy whenever a translator chooses this particular term, slave. I remember it was probably 15 years ago. I was teaching a course on basic Christian theology for new believers, and one of the elders at the church that I was pastoring was attending this class. And I'll never forget that as we began to explore the matter of slavery, that is to say, you are referred to as a slave. You know that, right? If you are a Christian, you are a a slave. And I'll never forget my friend, this elder, he raised his hand and he said, "I, I am very uncomfortable being referred to as a slave. John MacArthur helps us to understand this. He says, The New Testament understanding of the believer's relationship to Christ could not be more opposite. He is the master and the owner. God is the master and the owner. We are His possession. He is the King, the Lord, and the Son of God. We are His subjects and His subordinates. In a word, we are His... Slaves. Yes. We are His slaves. MacArthur continues, The gospel is not simply an invitation to become an associate of Christ. It is a mandate to become a slave of Christ. The term doulos here means a servant or a slave who is devoted to another. It it describes a person who, who totally disregards his own personal interests. And so MacArthur continues, While it is true that the duties of a slave and a servant may overlap to some degree, there is a key distinction between the two. A servant, you see is hired. A slave is owned. Servants have an element of freedom in choosing whom they work for and what they do. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. Slaves, on the other hand, have no freedom, no autonomy, no rights. It is important that you understand that none other than the Apostle Paul referred to himself. By the way, was there ever outside of the Lord Jesus Christ a better teacher, a more astute astute theologian than the Apostle Paul? I can't think of anyone else. He referred over and over again to himself as a doulos of Jesus Christ. Much to the chagrin of of my friend who struggled being referred to as a slave Romans chapter 1 verse 1 Paul a slave of Christ Jesus called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news that's the very first verse in Romans and Leona I can't wait until we come to the point of studying the book of Romans together Leona's been bugging me for A long time. Keep bugging. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says, Am I now trying to win the favor of the people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. And so you see, Paul is very comfortable referring to himself as a doulos, as a slave. And he's also, if you remember in the previous verse, he's comfortable referring to his co-workers, fellow laborers in the ministry, and also each of you, if you were a follower of Jesus, as a slave. That's verse 5, bond servants. But now, look with me at the next word that we need to wrestle with. It's the term master. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters. This is a word, it's the comes from the Greek word kurios. It means owner, employer, or boss. May I remind you that, that Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the CEO. Jesus is the savior. Jesus calls the shots. Jesus is sovereign over all things. There is a book that will be released in a few months, a book on Reformed preaching by Joel Beakey. And I have had the the privilege of reading this advanced copy before it's released. And just this morning, I read from Dr. Beakey that one of the prime marks of, of a Reformed preacher is that he preaches the sovereign pleasure of Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus is sovereign over everything. There's nothing that escapes his sovereign control. He is king. He is kurios. And so the New Testament does not oppose the division of a society into master-slave relationships. Indeed, most of us are involved in such a relationship, a relationship that can be accurately described as the employee-employer relationship. Now, if you look at verse 5, you... You can probably guess the final word that I want to have you focus on. Bondservants are slaves. Do what to your earthly masters? Obey your earthly masters. Scripture calls upon slaves to be obedient to their master in all things. And I can hear the response, but pastor, you don't understand. My boss, my boss is a merciless boss. My boss is a brutal taskmaster. I I call my boss, when he's not looking, I call him Pharaoh. The brutal taskmaster. Are you telling me, is the word of God telling me that I need to submit to his authority? Would you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2? Because the apostle Peter addresses that very interesting question. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18. Here the apostle Peter uses the word servants, which is a a household servant, a household slave. He says, be subject, that's the same word translated obey, be subject to your masters with all respect. Stop right there. We've picked that up so far, right? Be subject to your masters with all respect. But the question is, what if my boss is Pharaoh? How shall I respond to him or her? Peter says, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. We are to obey the employer that God has placed over us. So that word obey, it means to listen to, it means to submit to. And the force of this verb is is absolutely undeniable. Employees are to obey their, their employers as a matter of habit. It's written in the present tense, which means this. Keep on obeying your employers. It indicates that obedience is a daily event. There's never a time when we, when we step out of that model of obedience. Simply put, God-centered employees obey or submit to their employers. Now move from the the meaning of obedience with me just for a moment to the model of obedience. Because I'm sure you're asking, what's it look like? What's it look like when I go to work on Tuesday morning? How do I obey my boss? For years and years before I hurt my neck, I have a bone spur in my neck. uh, I I played racquetball. This this is before the days of cycling. Uh, uh, at least five days a week, I would play racquetball for years and years and years and years. And people would come to me from time to time and they, they would ask me, w- would you teach me how to play? Not just the rules of the game, but teach me teach me the strategy. Teach me some, some fundamentals. And so I would give the prospective racquetball player some basic tips. Things like, make sure you have the proper equipment. That thing you got at Walmart's got to go. You need to get a good racket bend your knees when you hit a ground stroke follow through on your ground strokes be aggressive be aggressive B-E-A-G-G-R-E-S-S-I-V-E okay, you with me? be aggressive you know, as a cheerleader if you're going to play racquetball you've got to take your hands out of your pockets, man and you have to be willing to dive you have to be willing to hurt your neck like I did You have to be aggressive. Never back down. Never back down and always keep your opponents in the back court. Don't let your opponent get in the front court or you are toast. Well, that's what I would do to help someone learn how to play the game of racquetball. Now, Paul sets forth in a similar fashion the the biblical model of obedience. How do we do it? Verse 5. He says, slaves, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. You say, what does that look like? Well, there's three things that I want to share with you. If you're to obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, let me submit that first, you respect their leadership. You say, but (laughs) there's nothing to respect about my boss. If you are to obey this imperative... This is an important imperative to obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. You must respect their leadership. Secondly, you must respond rightly to their authority. And notice you might have a hard time seeing the white respond to their authority. That is, with a godly attitude, with a godly mindset. Finally, you must reverence their position. That is, God has placed your boss in that particular position for a very important reason. Here is the essence of what it means to, to obey with fear and trembling. That means that... You don't backtalk your boss. That means you don't talk behind your boss's back. That means you speak respectfully to your boss. You obey your employer with fear and trembling. Number two, how do we obey this command? Paul says we obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Once again in verse 5. That word sincere comes from a word that means to have an honest and straightforward attitude. It's a term that describes describes a person who is devoid of pretense and hypocrisy. Now look for a second here. We are called to have a sincere heart. and. It would be very important that we understand what that word means. The heart, you see, is the, the seat of who we are. It's the seat of our emotions and our passions and our desires. It's the seat of our intellectual lives that display our, our will, our, our volition, our character. And so obeying with a sincere heart would indicate this. It would indicate an unfettered, uncompromising devotion... And sincerity that is not only directed at your employer, but one where you obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Many of you have been in a situation where you are slacking off on the job. I won't ask for a show of hands. You're slacking off on the job and you hear the back door open and you know it's your boss. And so if you are a young person and you work at the fast food restaurant and you know that one of the requirements is to have your hat on and you hate wearing that hat, so it's been off, right? All afternoon it's been off and the owner of the restaurant comes in you look, whoop, here he comes, whoop, you flip it back on. Or you begin to work harder because the boss shows up. And the new model of working would work something like this. You just assume that the boss is there 24 hours a day. Why? Because Jesus is there 24 hours a day. We work as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So, obeying with a sincere heart as you would Christ requires that you give him all your heart. With a sincere heart. Let me suggest that you do three things. Renounce, hypocrisy, and pretense. Again, that's the meaning of sincerity. Secondly, reject a self-seeking attitude. I don't know how many times I've heard these words from, the, from, from various employees in all kinds of fields. From fast food, to pharmacies, to uh, uh, C, uh, large corporations. That's not fair. That's not fair. Well, we must reject this self-seeking attitude and move to the third area where we respond to our employer exactly the same way we would respond to Christ. And Lord willing, that's obeying as you would obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, how do we we, uh, carry out this imperative? We obey, Paul says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 6. Again, you strive to do your best. You seek excellence whether the boss is in the room or not. Number four, you do the will of God from the heart. And you see, all these kind of flow together, you see. They all flow together. If you're doing things to the glory of God, you will also do the will of God from the heart, which leads to our fifth helpful point to render service with goodwill as to the Lord and not unto men. You see, God-centered employees obey their employers. And so I want to ask this morning, wherever you are and your stage of life is, do you obey to your employer? Do you submit to your earthly master from the heart and from the soul? And are you working day by day to establish A God-centered work ethic. I think you would agree with me that we live in a culture where laziness, laziness is a dominant theme. And it would be my great delight to see the young people at Christ Fellowship break the mold of laziness. And to move forward into the next generation as hard workers. Young men and young women who who do everything with a a full heart as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christians should be the best business people. They should be the best doctors. They should be the best dentists, lawyers, clerks, nurses, janitors, accountants, loggers, school teachers, and athletes that the world has to offer. We're called to obey those who are in authority over us. Look now at verse 9. And it's interesting, and as I studied this passage, I realized I I didn't have a whole lot to say. And there's a reason for that. Read the verse with me. "'Masters do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him.'" And the reason there's not an awful lot to say when we come to the second point that God-centered employers treat their employees with honor and respect is because of what Paul says in verse 9. Master, do the same to them. That is to say, everything we just discovered in verses 5 all the way through verse 8, Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now if you're a boss, if you're an employer, do the same to them. Leviticus 25, 43 says, You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. So quickly, look with me at the model of obedience. Something very interesting happens here. Paul says, Bosses, stop your threatening. That word means a declaration or of an intent or determination to inflict harm on another person. If you're a boss and you act that way to those who are under your authority, Paul says, stop doing that. That same word is translated in Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Do you remember before the apostle Paul was a Christian? Before he was a Christ follower? His heart was filled with sin. And the Bible says that Saul still breathing threats. That's the same word here. Threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. In other words, this is a very serious word. It's attached in Acts 9 with, with murder. And so stop threatening those who are called to submit to your authority. And then move to the, model, the motivation, rather, of obedience. We see that the Christian employer has the same master in heaven and that he is called to show no partiality. The bottom line here is that employers and employees are both accountable to God for their respective work ethics. So I want to conclude by asking this, can we do it? And you hear this from me on a a regular basis. When there's an imperative in the word of God, I generally ask, can we do it? Can employees obey their employers? Can employers treat their employees with mutual honor and respect in the way that God intends? And the answer is that in the flesh, we can't. The simple answer is no. We can't do it in our own strength. We remember that every act of obedience in the Christian life is generated and made possible by the Holy Spirit who resides in you and is made possible by the indwelling Jesus Christ. In other words, your only hope of moving toward a Godward ethic is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see what, how, the, how the gospel is so powerful and so relevant and so practical. You see, there are people without Jesus, and you know many of them very well. People who are not Christians have good work ethics. Don't let anyone ever tell you that if a person is not a Christian, they can't have a good work ethic. Business moguls like Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, possess a stunning work ethic. And it is obvious that many of his employees do the same at Amazon. But there is a gigantic chasm between a good work ethic and a Godward work ethic. There is a gigantic chasm between a good work ethic and a Godward work ethic. You see, a work ethic apart from God is described by the prophet Isaiah as man-made righteousness. It's described as dirty rags. On the other hand, a God-word work ethic pleases the king of the universe because every act of obedience is generated by God. Have you had the chance to get up in the morning, you go to work, and you come home, And you lay your head on the pillow and Spence, you're the first person that pops in my mind because Spence is a hard worker. And Spence, you put your head on the pillow and you thought, wow, that feels good. I put in a hard day worth of labor. That is to say, you work 60 minutes to be paid 60 minutes. But my fear is that in our culture, many people work 20 minutes and expect to be paid for 60 minutes. We are, before Almighty God, called to put in an honest day's work to the glory of God if we are working. Francis Schaeffer says it like this. He says, To live moment by moment through faith on the the basis of the blood of Christ and the power of the Spirit is the only really integrated way to live. But then he goes on. He says, this is the only way to be at rest with myself, for only in this way am I not trying to carry what I cannot. You see, what Schaefer is helping us to understand is, in order for us to, to be Godward in everything we say and do, we must be empowered by the gospel. God-centered employees obey their employers. And God-centered employers treat their employees with mutual honor and respect. And this is only possible when you're filled with the Spirit who accomplishes His mighty and sovereign purposes in you. When you relate to your employer in godly ways, when employers relate to their employees in godly ways, you move forward and have this God-centered work ethic that pleases God. And I want to close with this. When you please God, you glorify God. Which is to say, you come face to face with the essence of your existence. Why did God create you? Isaiah 43 says, he created you to glorify him. He created you to glorify him. May I ask, are, are you moving toward a Godward work ethic? Now, for those of you who are retired or you're uh, uh, doing something else in your life right now, you say, How does this apply to me? How is it relevant to me? It's relevant to you in every way. Why? Because everyone has someone that they answer to. We all have someone that we answer to. I, as senior pastor at Christ Fellowship, I answer to the elder council. It is the elder council that sets the parameters. It's the elder council that put my, put my job description together. It's the elder council that I answer to. And so I would ask, are you moving toward a, a Godward work ethic? Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. May I encourage you this morning to to work heartily as unto the Lord and not to, to men. And may God bless your life. May God bless your ministry. May God bless you wherever he has you right now in his sovereign timetable. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these practical lessons that we've had a chance to explore in your word God, I pray that you would enable us by your grace to be submissive people, that we would remember that in submission we find freedom. Help us to remember the opposite lesson that if we reject submission, we are bound up in godless slavery. So Lord, would you enable us by your grace on this day? Would you encourage your people? Would you help us to think deeply about these things? And I pray that as Uh, We move through the Christian life that we would be enabled by your grace, by your indwelling spirit, all for the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to take part in the Lord's Supper this morning. And as always, um, this is for believers in Jesus Christ to remember.